For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Enjoyed the book. Thank you, American Shamans. Uh, that is uh, that was quite a book. I I and um, I really just want to get into get into kind of the into the weeds on this kind of stuff with you about uh, powwow and folk magic and sure. your exploration of it and your experience with it and all that stuff. I mean, this is this is something that's been really fascinating me lately has been this folk magic stuff. Um, I've been surprised at exactly how people have received it. And I think it's because it has, um, for many people, a genuine family connection. Yeah. It has a um, heritage connection of all kinds. I mean, even when I was studying it, I had no idea until one Thanksgiving dinner that I had an absolute family connection to it because it had always been kept private. And it was revealed by my grandmother after Thanksgiving dinner that her father was a powwow who specialized in animal work. Couldn't do much for humans, but he could certainly had a reputation all over Western North Carolina for being able to heal animals with touch. Oh, okay. Yeah. We we just we just talked recently to um, Jake Richards. I don't know if you are, if you're familiar with him. I don't I don't think so. Names are I do better with faces than I do with names. Sure, gotcha. sure. This was um, he's actually he lives here in Tennessee in Jonesboro, and he's kind of he's written this book called uh, Backwoods of Witchcraft. About oh, yeah. he's uh, a real I young guy too. Yeah, he's only like about twenty two years old or something like that. But uh, he's written like this great book about it, and it's more just like the Appalachian tradition, I guess. Closer to like what in the book you talk about the Granny Woman, I think yep. closer to that tradition, yeah. Than like powwow, um, you know. There's honestly there is an overlap in all these traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I always get sort of amused at people who were trying to pull it into one little segment and said this is 
this tradition and this is that tradition when our ancestors really didn't care if something worked or they learned about something, they just brought it in and used it. I have never seen even race was no barrier. Yeah. And so you had, you had uh, root doctors using powwow. Right. You had granny women using root doctor spells. You had powwows using everything. Uh, it really was, it was, is a matter of practicality. These were always, I have very country uh, relatives and ancestors, and they were all extremely practical people uh, and all very religious people. I kind of got into this in 1974 as a, looking for something novel to write about in an anthropology class. And this fellow recommended I call this guy down in Buford, who was a root doctor. Well, I'd heard of root doctors. I, they were all around the area where I was living at, with my parents. And they were people you kind of stayed clear of and you were respectful to them. You know, there was, they were kind of feared and respected at the same time. And so I called this fellow in Buford and after a long interview went down there uh, and started talking and interviewing him. Uh, after I did that for a while, I learned through an article in a magazine that's published, I don't know if it's still published, in the state of South Carolina called Sandlapper. And there was an article about this man who lived in Lexington. Well, we lived like 10 miles from Lexington, so it sure was a lot easier than going down to Buford. So I, there again, I had this sort of time when I had to convince this person to let me talk to them and then I was serious about it and I was not you know just some fly-by-night character um, and that started the whole relationship with Lee Gandy who's in the book quite a bit oh yeah and I stayed more with him than I did with anybody else because he was close and the things that happened with Lee started out um, intense and got more and more and more and more intense. Uh, I saw some interesting and sort of miraculous things with McTeer, uh, but Lee was a whole nother kettle of fish, so to speak. Uh, you had to get used to what went on in his house. Uh, you could see anything when you went over there. And I really struggled with it kind of psychologically at first because I was very anchored in a very rational sense of what reality was and it took me a while to be able to accept it um, that there were things happening that I had no rational explanation for well Jack I want to I want to get to that um, but I want to just kind of like lay some groundwork here Sure. And to say too, like we've already started, so this is the, I guess the true start of 2020. Yeah, you know, um, hopefully we'll have a lot of shows this year. Uh, in, in reference to some things that have happened tonight in the world, but anyway, uh, so we've got our first guest of 2020. We've got Jack Montgomery. Uh, Jack, I met you at uh, here in Nashville at the Aroma G Folk Magic Festival mm. yep. uh, just about in October. And I was there doing um, good amount of flyers for 
the Strange Realities conference there. Um, and I watched your presentation, was really impressed by it, started talking to you, uh, found out that you knew a lot about powwow, um, which has something that just kind of came onto my radar really honestly last year, or at least maybe the end of 2018. Um, I did tell you that we have another one of our fellow podcasters, Timothy Renner, uh, who lives in Southern Pennsylvania, who has a podcast called Strange Familiars. And he actually starts off each one of his shows with uh, this snippet from a soundbite from uh, a powwow doctor that uh, his wife's mother interviewed in the 1970s. And until I had like really listened to Tim's show, I had no idea what powwow even was. It's not something that uh, really um, the people who practice power tend to not be uh, headline grabbers. They tend to operate quietly, almost invisibly. Yeah. You have to know somebody to be able to connect with them. They're not in your newspaper, except, you know, by accident or when someone takes an interest in it. And powwow is one of several of these American traditions that, like you said, do interact with each other that you yeah. go into detail in in your book uh, American Shamans which is what this is mostly probably going to revolve around right right and so, I, I bought the book when I was there yeah I told you I would get you on the show and then hit you up to come on so that's kind of laying in the background as to how how I met you and um, I um, really wanted to get somebody that, that was a practitioner of this to really come on and talk about it too because like I studied I stated before you know folk magic has been something that I've become really interested in. Uh, there's a few other people like uh, Tony Kale, mm -hmm. who I know you you know very well, writing a book with him now. And um, David Metcalf is another one that's kind of like stoked my interest in this. And David, um, he not he hasn't written a book, but he's talked about um, Santa Muerta, that whole like kind of folk tradition down there in Mexico. So we've kind of covered a lot of this. Uh, but to kind of really, like I said, I really wanted to get down in the weeds with you on this. So you gave a little bit about of your background and kind of how you got into it. Um, and, but you know, how did all that kind of lead into writing American Shamans? Like what gave you the idea to write the book initially? Well, it, like I say, originally it was a senior thesis. It became a senior thesis. <coughs> I won a scholarship, uh, with that thesis, um, but then it just kind of um, fizzled. Now, I kept up the personal connection to it. But, you know, I sort of moved on with life. And I uh, went to grad school um, at the University of Virginia, studied Hinduism. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sort of keeping this little sideline going. And that's how I met uh, the lady known as Sarah Ramsey, in, in, who the granny. Uh, then I became a librarian and was at a meeting and this man was there at the table with us you know sometimes you go out as a group and he said I heard something about you and I he started asking me about this and he said I run a small publishing company I would like to publish on these types of subjects would you be interested in writing a book and I'm like oh sure <laughs> 
Uh, first thought was like, oh my God, I've got a footlocker full of this stuff. I don't know where it is, but I'll find it, you know, of uh, notes and tapes. Um, so I kind of went home and saw, wrote him a, um, an outline as best I could. And I thought I can cover three traditions and introduce three traditions in a way that perhaps has not been done. I wanted to be very responsible and I wanted to let these people come through and sort of speak their own, uh, tell their own story. So that's why there are transcripts in that book of conversations, which were taken off of little cassette tapes that I was hoping, praying wouldn't break. Oh yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Because they were so old. Yeah, you'd recorded them in the seventies, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, every second was like, "Please don't break! Please don't break!" <laughs> Did you manage to get them all transcribed? Uh, most of them. Um, I discovered that I had had a uh, a young lady friend who had, when I wasn't around, had gone and recorded music over some of them. Oh. Oh. So like so like you go to you go to listen to it and there's like fog hat is like on the yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> and I I said some really unkind things and <laughs> went through the rest of them and I found that you know there was enough there to uh, to make a uh, to do what I did in American Shamans with but I one thing I'd love to do is to maybe transfer those things if I can get some good recording engineer and transfer some of that stuff into disc. Yeah, I was so about that, to ask you that whether you'd put them on the disc or like made them into the MP3 or something like that. Absolutely, I'd like for people to be able to hear yeah. the Andy's voice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You were, you were kind of like doing the Smithsonian Folkways thing, yeah, out there and getting the field recordings. It's funny you mentioned that. That was sort of the idea behind it. Yeah. When I re- I was very much into the folkways music and all that kind of stuff and how the um, the father and son Lomax went yeah. down and all that absolutely fantastic work. In oh, and, yeah, ways of preserving those things. Yes. Because, you know, after all, all of the people that I'm talking about in this in the book are down dead. Yeah. Um, I, now, there, there's another fellow known, named Mike Harmon. He was... Lee Gandy's other people and we reconnected after 40 years and now go visit each other every year and we sit and talk in his 1870 house and uh, last last November we did some uh, had some adventures we started to look for sites in the book in Lee's book uh, Secrets of Hexenmeister we started to go look for those certain things, and by golly, we found one, and it found us. And we weren't totally expecting that one, but it, it happened. And it, it shows that there's still a lot of this quite alive, still very vibrant tradition. Do um, you want to go into what that was? or We went looking for a spirit, a nature spirit called Old Buncombe. Now that's what the that's what the folks around there called him. He was a mischievous spirit. He lived in a certain section of Lexington County. So he said, well, "Why don't we go find the old house?" And I said, "Sure, let's go." So he had we all piled into his truck with his great big old dog, who's very active, 
And we got to this one point. We The house was gone. The house was absolutely gone. Uh, we drove into a wooded stretch. And all of a sudden, the dog got dead silent. Sat down. Wouldn't move its head. Looks nervously from side to side. And it was like the whole... It was like we had all gone from midday sun to late afternoon, almost dark, in a matter of seconds. And it wasn't that there were trees over us either. We weren't driving in a, in a covered area. But it was like something had settled all over us. And we just didn't say anything. And I said, do you feel that? He goes, yeah, what is it? I said, I don't know. So we kept driving all of a sudden, it's like we drove out of it. Hmm. And everything was normal again. I said, do you want to turn around? Let's go back through, see if it comes back. Sure enough, right back into it. It was a presence and you could feel it physically. I don't know if it was electromagnetic energy or what, but in the last pass, we did it three times and then we thought better of keep we're also sort of uh, annoying the people who lived in the area. But it was like looking at houses in the dark. It had impacted our visual ability. And I saw an animal run in front of the car. And I said, look at that. Look at that. And he goes, what? And it vanished right in front of us. At the same time, he was hearing something flapping its wings at the side of the, of the truck like a bird sailing past. So we got out of there. He said, I don't want to go back in there. I said, no, I don't either. I can't imagine living in that stretch of territory. But whatever old Buncombe, he's still there. Because whatever this is, it messes with people's heads. And it's something I think almost geophysical. I'd like to go back in there with some with some sensitive equipment mm -hmm. and see if we couldn't figure out if it is like like uh, geomagnetic or what but i tell you it, it impacted both of us and we kind of turned around and went to his house and said okay what the hell happened here what did we just experience and we shared with each other what we did he's gone back since and it happened again I said, do you want to get out of this truck on the third pass? He goes, no. Because <laughs> this is one of the few places that scared Lee Gandy. Really? It took a lot to scare Lee Gandy. And you said this was a guy who was used to almost 24-7 strange yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, this, uh, it, it reminds me a lot of some stories that I've heard um, some other people have said about coming home on these like, dead spots in the woods and then all of a sudden like – all the noise just ceases and it's like these weird eerie points in uh in the forest that yeah. reminds me of that and related to cryptozoological things you know like you right. said you saw the animal he he saw thought he heard wings flapping yep yeah yep for like a mothman-esque kind of thing yeah somewhat yeah and i i have no explanation whatsoever for what happened to us um he went back with himself. He said the dog got dead silent again. Dogs, it's good to take a dog if, if as long as nothing happens to it. 
but it, you know they they pick up generally a little bit before you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he got dead dead still, and that was unusual for that dog. We we both knew something that was going on. So that was our little unexpected adventure. Um, I imagine he will take some other people in there and find out if they experience the same thing. It's interesting too that we were each experiencing it different, but both of us felt this sort of heavy mist-like presence all over us. It was like sitting on your face, like a wet cloth. Mm. I don't, I, like I say, I don't have any explanation for it. Strange. Well, Jack, let's talk a little bit about these. Um, and I want, definitely want to get back to the strange experiences and some of the experiences you have with Lee Gandy, but uh, just to kind of lay some groundwork. Um, the, the concept of the shaman and how that. Well, first of all, how do you def- how do you define shamanism, and then also how do these traditions like powwow, root magic, um, and the granny woman in the Appalachian traditions, how do these fit in with the concept of shamanism? For me, the shamanism, and I like the t- I've always liked the definition is a grammar of the mind. It is the ability to alter one's consciousness in in an automatic and willful manner uh, to be able to achieve things that aren't normally available to our everyday distracted consciousness of modern life and modern media, uh, the overstimulation that we normally live in. Most of the people that I met spent most of their time in a rural setting, in quiet, Sometimes, in, in Lee's case, mostly in solitude. His wife worked, but she was gone most of the time. Um, and I think it's heightened awareness. It's an awareness. Now, there, I, I know where shamanism comes from. I know where the term comes from. But it was the best way I could describe some of the behaviors that I saw practiced. Uh, the the uh, healing behaviors of stroking the uh, washing behaviors that you do to start removing negativity from people, the chance, the use of words as a vehicle for energy transfer. Uh, in Lee's case, the working in multiple dimensions, uh, the, the reaching out to one's inner self through uh, lucid dreaming. That's a, that would be one of the first things that was to lucid dream. Hmm. And early on, it doesn't. Not everybody takes to this, uh, and it's really nothing if no one's. You're not inadequate if you can't make it happen. But if you can do so, you can start to develop on that. It's sort of like a starting point. You play a little song on your piano or whatever, and then you move on to more complex songs. That's a good analogy of how you develop it. But the concept of magic is magic is, is all around us. We've, we are all living in a magical world surrounded by spirits all the time. 
uh, we're all immersed in it. We're not separate from it. But we've shut ourselves off from it in most cases so that we can do ordinary things. It's kind of sad when you see someone who's gotten completely into it and can't turn it off. Yeah. And they're, they're really sort of helpless people who are running around seeing spirits everywhere and being tormented by them. Um, and I feel sad for those people. But you do have to learn to turn it off, to shut it down. Yeah. For instance, you talk about uh, the granny woman in the book that she said that she saw people constantly, ghosts and such. Yeah. Spirits. It's it's not pleasant. Uh, it's not pleasant to walk into somewhere and you can feel someone's presence around you. Yeah. Because they will. They're there. It's just they're there. Fortunately, I, ha I have a very uh, a wife who is basically psychic as well. And there are many times we love to go in old houses and tour, you know, historic homes in the sort. Right. Um, but we've gone into a couple of them and going, okay, let's don't stay. This is not a good environment. You can feel when it's not right. And I think a lot of our ancestors had this simple, these simple little skills. <laughs> and they, they knew when something was there and they knew could, could sense whether it was hostile or uh, friendly. So another aspect to this is that the, these people who become shamans, which you call shamans in these different traditions, right. they have a, a social function too. Absolutely. Within the respective communities. One thing that was always interesting to me about them is the social tightrope that they walked. They could be the hero one minute, and if something went wrong, they were the scapegoat. And right. there are multiple, multiple instances where someone who had been trusted for generation for their entire life, something went horribly wrong, and they got blamed for it. And all of a sudden, they were the villain. So in terms of the societies they lived at, they tended to be peripheral people. Um, certainly, Lee Gandy was uh, peripheral. He was respected. He was also feared because he'd done a few things that uh, people attributed to him. And there was one where uh, he got mad and uh, cursed this apple orchard or, and the guy who was fussing at them for picking up apples. And uh, well, the apple orchard died and eventually so did the guy. Well, that gave him a pretty fearsome reputation. Mm community now do um, they did, did people think that he was responsible for that or was there was it yeah. more than just like possibility that 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 just happened the incident was well known in the community yeah uh and when the apple orchard literally withered away in the matter of one season and then the guy lurched up in church and fell over uh, they put they put it together that Lee had had something to do with it and I asked him I said did you do this and he goes I don't know wow I, you, you he don't couldn't even he, he couldn't even tell himself whether he did it or not no he said I don't think so I didn't mean to I yeah. was angry but that, uh, someone who gets to his level of development 
has to be very careful with their emotions. Because you could put that in, you could put out that intention, and then it could cause that effect. Yes, yeah. uh, his grandfather uh, got mad when lightning struck a tree outside their house and scared Lee as a child, and he yelled at the lightning, said, "Just try to flash one at me." Next instant, he was dead. Mm. That's the other thing I try to always stress to people when you're dealing with true, authentic American folk religion is this is dead serious stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, people do not, I, I say people don't honestly, do not play with this. Have a commitment, have a serious nature towards it, have a respect for it, because it will mess you up. But don't be flippant. Don't be flippant don't about be, it. Yeah. Don't be fluffy bunny. Yeah. That ain't gonna happen. That's not gonna work for you at all. Especially if you get into the whole. And there's a big trend now of people who go out to haunted houses and, you know, run around screaming and hollering and. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's pretty ridiculous stuff, but it's also pretty damn dangerous. Mm. You can bring something home with you that you can't wash off. Or you, you can't wash it off. But And I've heard plenty of stories of people that have done just that. Not meaning to, but bringing some kind of attachment back with them that causes a lot of havoc in their lives. Seances are another thing. It's not play. Yeah. Ouija board is like the old, back in the 70s when they'd have a big house party and throw it in the front door and anybody walked in. And sure enough, somebody stole their stuff. And you're thinking... How'd you get that kind of stupid? Right. And, and playing with this kind of stuff in a non-serious manner brings the same effect right down on your head. I've seen it happen. So these people who occupy these shamanic roles, they serve as kind of like a, a bridge between the community and the spirit world? Yeah, they're like mediators. And then also um, healing and guidance, prophecy, things like that. That's a big part of the role. You know, uh, J.E. McTeer called himself the poor man's psychiatrist. And a lot of the people that he saw as clients didn't trust conventional psychotherapists. He never tried to dissuade them from going. He never tried to dissuade anyone from going to a medical doctor. But if they didn't believe that, he would talk to them. I watched a woman uh, powwow counsel with a young lady who was had just broken up with her marriage and that's a lot of the stuff they dealt with was very mundane divorces um cheating husbands and wives that kind of stuff but those are uh, things people care about yeah and that's the that to me is the appeal of american folk religion it deals with basic life it's it's there to help you through <laughs> your marriage disillusion it's there to help you if you've got some kind of thing in your house that's making your life a living hell it can range all up and down there all and up down the uh, spectrum of events but it's all your life um, I had a client this past month who called from the west coast and she was having some real difficulties I can't go into the particulars of the case, 
but I packed up a box of protective things to send to her uh, and sent them to her um, to try and secure her, at least her bedroom environment, because that's where you're the most vulnerable. And apparently she got them and, no, and then we talked about how to use them, how to, how to start protecting yourself about bathing every night before you go to bed, especially if you do any kind of like ghost hunting or stuff like that, you cannot, you must not go and lie down and go to sleep because you're just lying down with all this stuff on you or attached to you. And it can be a very, really bad stuff can happen to you. And that's what she was experiencing. I, I like I say, I don't want to go into the particulars, uh, but I, everything I do is free absolutely free there's no charge for anything i've ever done right and that that's a powwow tradition now in hoodoo there are plenty of people who charge for what they do but i've always preferred to keep the powwow ethic of it's all god's will i'm just a, a connecting wire so to speak yeah it's not it's not the personality it's it's god doing it through right. you yeah and i'm not about to make a buck off of that um, I, I wanted to talk about this uh, the concept that you have in the book about the uh, concept of the kind of like illness and sickness as being an imbalance mm -hmm. and those three types, natural, spiritual, and unnatural. Yes. And I feel like that that's, that's very important in kind of understanding these practices, what, yeah. uh, how the, the powwow doctor would um, respond to those. Well, the first thing you always do in a treatment is you sit down and talk. And you, what I, it sounds really bad to use this term, but you penetrate or phase into the person psychically. They don't know you're doing it, but you do it. And you try to, you, all you can get is disjointed uh, impressions. But given what you're saying to them in the dialogue that you're engaging with them, it starts to give you a picture of what they're really going through, whether they're doing this to themselves, you know, or if they have some sort of physical illness that, you know, for goodness sakes, uh, a shot of antibiotics will take care of, or do they have a projected intrusion? Do they have something in their environment that is attacking them, either projected from a person, knowingly or unknowingly, or is it something um, like a spirit, like a, um, and this has happened, you know, where a person dies and they're, uh, they've had a bad relationship with their uh, parents or something of that nature, someone like that. And they start having certain illnesses. They start having the illness that the parent had. They're starting to manifest the symptoms that's when you can go in and do, say, a ticket off and help them to remove it so that they can get some relief. And then you follow up with them and you counsel, you dispose of, when you've removed something, you take it and you dispose it. Then you come back and you give them, I usually will provide a protective charm along with some instructions for taking care of themselves. Uh, and this is how powwows have operated for a long time. Um, 
most of them are very good, simple folk who uh, are just out there literally trying to help. There's a great story. I don't, this is not in the book, but there was a uh, couple named Reuben and Rosella Rock. And I found it uh, very strangely in a book in the library. A, as I opened up the book and I was looking through it, it was about Pennsylvania, this news clipping fell out. I kid you not, this really did happen. And I pick it up and it's about this woman who had her husband disinterred because his spirit was in her house telling her he didn't want to be married in his military uniform. Hmm. Okay. And Powell, I said, you've got to dig him up. I've got to bless him. And then you can put him back, but you can't put him back in that uniform. And a judge, you know, kind of must have shook his head, but he had granted he granted the legal thing to dig him up. And um, they took got the uniform off of him and burned it, put him into some regular clothes, reburied him. The powwow washed him, which is interesting. The powwow washed the corpse to get all of his the neutrality back into the corpse. Laid it back down. Everything was fine from then on. So but I guess what happened. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to say before we get uh, further into some of the, the particulars, can you, since we're already on powwow, can you give kind of a general overview of what powwow is and, and where it came from, some of the general history? Yeah, kind oh, of the sure. history. And of course, you know, lot. definitely going to need to mention Long Lost Friend. That's another Oh, one. absolutely. Yeah. Powwow came from uh, the, basically, it was a European practice along what's called the Palatine area of Germany. Um, a lot of the people there were oppressed by all the continual little wars that they had. Germany was not united at that time. At the same time, uh, for instance, in South Carolina, the Blanters and the Low Country wanted something in between themselves and the uh, runaway indentures and the Native Americans in the upcountry. So they actively started to recruit these people to come over and fill in the middle part of the state. And they, caught, they, they knew the Germans were very responsible, solid people. So they brought them over literally about the thousands and put them in the middle of the state, settled them into their little towns, and then promptly forgot about them. Well, they provided the uh, barrier that was necessary, but they also kept their practices from Europe in there, and they kept their German language. Um, you can divide the state of South Carolina into three sections, and mid-state is where all of this was. The low part of the state was where the hoodoo was, because you had the rice plantations and all of the uh, uh, African-Americans who were brought in in the condition of chattel slavery. Um, and in the upstate, you had a lot of Scots-Irish who had fled indenture. And, and a lot of the upstate area seemed like uh, nobody went up there, so they were safe once they got up there, even if they ran from their indenture. Uh, but in that mid-state area, in a place called the Dutch Fork, um, there were people who fell right back into those old practices from Europe. And there are, in fact, people in Germany and Austria today 
that we have communicated with who show a remarkable similarity in some of the things that they've done are doing in powwow. Some of the chants are almost identical. Um, I remember talking to an Austrian man who went with his grandmother as a child to feed the trolls at a waterfall. Interesting. <laughs> and all of this was very pre-Christian. Um, in 1906, uh, one of the early researchers talked about the Merzberg charm. Do you know the Merzberg charm? No, no. The Merzberg charm was a use for um, uh, sprains. And it has, it's one of the few where we have the full pagan version and then when it was Christianized. And in the pagan version, it talks about Folan, Woden went to the wood, there was Baldur's coat and his foot was wrenched. And it go, talks about Frua charmed it as Vola, her sister, and the Woden charmed as well he could as the bone wrench, the joint wrench, the blood wrench, bone to bone, blood to blood, joint to joint, as they were glued together. Now, take that pagan charm and Christianize and it become our Lord rode his foot, foal's foot, fell a slade. Down he lighted his foot, righted bone to bone, sinew to sinew, flesh to flesh, heal in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there were a lot of cases where that pagan practice got Christianized, those traditions got absorbed, uh, and the whole area of the Dutch fort really didn't open up until the 1950s. So you had all over a hundred years there where it just, and I mean this was not only in South Carolina, but North Carolina, in Georgia, wherever the Germans were. And you had the long lost friend that came out in 18, I want to say 183, and it's never been out of print. Uh, John Homan, I think was the name. John George Homan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some of the, they had, it was a book of incantations. The words themselves, honestly, are not what happened, what makes it happen. The words are vehicles for your projected energy. The secret to folk healing sounds remarkably simple and that it is you, your ability to call forth and project energy towards a source. So if you have a bruise, you go, bruise thou shalt not heat, bruise thou shalt not sweat, bruise thou shalt not run, no more than the Virgin Mary shall bring forth another son. And you make the sign of the cross three times with your thumb. Hmm. The famous one about burns, two angels came from the north, one named fire, the other named frost. Frost said to fire, go away, go away, in the name of Jesus, go away. They had, it was for, if you've read, have you ever read Holman's book? I have not read, I have not read the book, no. no. It's remarkably mundane. It has recipes on how to make uh, wine, how to, how to do certain things, and very practical information. And then it have in the midst of all this, it'll have these other things about how to spellbind a thief. Uh, it, and like I watched a healing up in Pennsylvania one time where a child had fallen, busted their mouth open. And the father appeared at the door, poor little thing was squalling and bleeding all over herself. And the mother was trying desperately to calm it down. Um, 
he says he walks over he says can I help you help her the mother goes here he takes the child he lifts his hand up over her face and she goes limp like a dish rag hmm. and I'm sitting over there and I go I gotta see this so I get up and I get like inches from him because I, I can see him whispering and he's doing it in German and he's going heile heile hinka direct mari he's da oles recht which is holy 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 chicken shit uh, tomorrow morning it, it will not hurt you know, it's basically what it is uh, they use the term dirt chicken dirt tomorrow morning it won't hurt and I swear to you I watched that wound close I saw skin form over it and the child's just lying there like it's completely asleep uh, that actually happened to you too right didn't you have a burn or something that you had um, you had had to heal yourself? Yeah. yeah, I burnt the daylights out of myself. And I thought, well, if you're going to do it, here it is. Here's your chance, buddy. Let's see how well you can do this. And I, I think I the thing of it is you slip out of normal consciousness. And that's how it's done. It's, it happens in that little in-between world. It's the same world that you see the spirits in. Like when I'll, when I'll encounter a spirit, I have a signal that always happens. I don't know why, but it does. Everything goes dead silent. And that's my clue, like, pay attention, something's about to happen. And I realized in that truck with Mike, everything went dead silent. It so means I've slipped out of normal consciousness. And I'm in that shaman-like state it's where the healing takes place it's where the spirits are seen it's where the communications happen um, first and foremost it's about achieving this different state of consciousness and that state of consciousness allows both the healing or or other other powers and enables it right it allows your intent to move and as if your intent can move, then you've got a responsibility to use it wisely. Because, you know, you can, you have to be careful with things like anger. You have to be careful with things like lust. Uh, I have seen people, now the classic case is uh, spectrophilia, where you'll have people that will use their altered consciousness to engage in um, physical relationships with spirits and it can happen it is extremely dangerous to your mental health um, when Lee would go into one of his trances usually to try and find somebody that's just another shamanic activity he, I remember I would sit with him and I had water, salted water, holy water, so to speak. And if I saw him in distress, I'd begin to wash his face and his hands and help bring him back. Because not even he was impervious. Uh, he, you need someone to help you when you do that kind of stuff. Um, 
because there's a real hazard. Something can jump into you when you leave. Um, now, to most people, thank goodness, this sounds just like crazy stuff. And you don't let them think otherwise. Uh, because if people, I know we went to a lecture, this is a good example. We went to a lecture where Lee was giving a lecture about powwow and book magic. And I saw these guys come in and sit at the back of the room. And I had a feeling about them that wasn't good. But all of a sudden, he began to talk really nuts, saying really stupid, crazy things. And people were kind of looking at each other like, what the hell happened to him? <laughs> so he, the, the talk soon ended, and we, we got in the car to take him home because he didn't drive. And I said, what the hell did you do that for? Everybody's going to think you're crazy. He said, that's exactly what I want them to think. Do you see those men at the back of the room? I said, yeah. He said, they were wanting me to do something very bad. And better they think I'm some lunatic who can't tie his shoes than come after me demanding that I do something for them. Yeah, and misuse his abilities. Yes. Yeah. What's the, Jack, what's the uh, relationship between powwow and Christianity? How how essential is that to powwow? Um you can't I had a do you know what the term oglave means? No. It's uh German heathenism. And I used to have some friends who were very much into that and they wanted uh, at times to say they would say things like we have to get all these Christian things out of powwow and return it to its pagan roots. And I said, well, you can certainly try to do that, but it won't be powwow that you have. Powwow is intrinsically tied to its Christian roots. And you really got to do a hard jump to try to make it something else. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, I have also had clients who were Wiccans and for them I don't use the words in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost I'll use it in the name of the Maiden and the Mother and the Crone and guess what it works the same mm -hmm. well it's interesting in, in the, that there's so many people uh, you know European descended people here who are really searching for a, a direct connection to the old ways and they're kind of going about it really intellectually or abstractly or with movements that are a lot more recent when there actually is these uh, these traditions that have direct connections to the old world and to the old ways, though they are syncretic and have elements of Christianity, but those are, those are right here. Yeah, uh, that's true. The one thing I've seen, um, Powa doesn't have the kind of following that Hoodoo does. Uh -huh. And the reason being is money. You cannot make money and be a legitimate powwow. Now, people can give you food or they can always tell people if you want to do something and to thank me, do something nice for someone or give to your church or do something positive for someone else. Share a kindness with someone. That's all I require. But 
the hoodoo doesn't have that kind of barrier. You can make an awful lot of money, and people like Stephanie Robinson, also known as Dr. Buzzard, made a ton of money being a root doctor. He drove a, a Cadillac during the Great Depression. He built a church for his community. People like Jim Jordan uh, helped with finance schools. So these people were powerful in their, in their community. And yet their, their money came from the practice of magic. Um, power doesn't really have that component. You either, you either like doing it, you find a, a spiritual comfort in it, as I do, and as some of the others do. But you're not going to ever legitimately take money from people for anything. Well, I guess people it's yeah. the book, but, you know, if I do anything from them, it's free. Since you've mentioned it, I guess it would be a good time to start exploring hoodoo, which is another uh, of these three traditions that you explore in the book. Uh, can you give kind of a, a background for what hoodoo is? And I understand it is having quite the revival right now, too. We are indeed having a revival of hoodoo. Uh, it's a very, uh, it of course has African roots, mm -hmm. West African roots. It is a product of um, process, the ugly process of chattel slavery. Um, many of these people were brought, especially from the Angola area, because into say South Carolina, because they could, they knew how to grow rice, and rice was a huge crop. For many many generations so they brought these people in they were resistant to the malaria which could devastate people who weren't uh, resistant to it and they set them up in slavery um, but they didn't really take care of them beyond the herbs and things that they came over with knowing how to use and so the root doctor became a powerful person with even within slavery and most of the early slavers did not try to Christianize. And this is the difference between uh, hoodoo and voodoo. When they brought, there were two points of basic points of entry for slaves. One was Charleston, South Carolina. That was New Orleans. When they brought them off the ship in New Orleans, there was a priest standing there baptizing them, which made them quasi human in the eyes of the church and put them under the Napoleonic code. However, in the Carolinas, Georgia, and that area, they were just property. They were little more than farm animals. So it took them a long time to realize and start to Christianize these people. So you had a very fertile ground created for the survival of African traditions. But also, in, the, also in New Orleans, the, the whole idea of Voodoo being the syncretism between uh, the West African religions and um, French Catholicism too, so you have that element entering into that you that you don't have in South Carolina, absolutely the South, yeah. And in some ways, the animistic traditions of West Africa remained pure as a result. It's it's a world of spirit, it's a world of, but it's not a world of gods. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, in in New Orleans, it's a world of gods that had, right. took on the form of Catholic saints. 
Uh, but in, in the Carolinas and Georgia, it's pure animistic spiritism. And its larger cosmological view is just more of a kind of duality between God and the devil. Right. Now, that did come in once, once the Christianization began. Uh-huh. And it, it became, like, like you used the word syncretism, that's an excellent word to use. Uh, it became a form of, of Christianity. But then Civil War happened. And a lot of these people were simply abandoned, especially the ones out on the Sea Islands. Nobody even went out there for a long time. And they fell right back into what they did before. After all, nobody else was looking after them. Uh, and that's called the heyday of the root doctor, is that post-Civil um, War period. That's when the greats were around, uh, like Dr. Buzzard. Uh, and anywhere African people moved, it was there with them. Now, one other thing about this, whites practiced it too. There are images of white root doctors. Uh, it's a lot more charm oriented, if, if to use a, a concocted word. There are a lot more physical herbs used for strictly magical purposes. Um, did either of your parents give you um, Buckeyes to carry when uh, you no. were a child? Guess not. No. Do you know what a Buckeye is? No. Never... A Buckeye is a naturally occurring nut, but to carry one protected you from evil. And I remember being given them it's a little boy to carry around and I didn't like him because they if you fell on him when you played it hurt okay yeah I, I I never got that as a kid but I have heard of that yeah that you yeah that you mentioned what it is yeah and uh, people would create their own little poultices uh, grandma would put a mustard plaster on your chest God knows that was awful but it it, <laughs> <laughs> it was miserable and then put a shirt over you like, ah, I'm dying in here. Uh, but though the healing and all those little remedies were all still apart and mm -hmm. they were practiced by whites and blacks alike. And like you said, in, in contrast to powwow, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't necessarily against making money from it. So it was also kind of commercialized, right? Right. It commercialized very quickly. For instance, Aunt Carolyn Dye, uh, Arkansas healer. Um, not Arkansas, what am I saying? Yeah. She was actually from South Carolina. She moved across the river in, from Memphis to Liberty, Arkansas. She was a spiritualist, like a lot of them. The spiritualist movement had a big effect on both powwow and hoodoo. And Aunt Carolyn Dye was a spiritualist. She was a seer. She became so renowned that literally they had a train car called Aunt Carolyn Die Special that would bring people over by the train load every weekend. Now, she was, she was like many uh, hoodoos. She didn't charge directly. But she had 400 people sitting in her front yard on a Saturday afternoon. 
<laughs> Nothing wrong with selling them their lunch. Right, right. <laughs> Set up a lemonade stand or something, yeah. Yes, she did, and she made a ton of money doing so. This is uh, about died. when, late night, like early 1900s? Yes. Okay. She was uh, so highly respected that even government officials would sneak over there and seek her counsel. So, in, in that way, she was similar to Marie Laveau in that uh, Marie Laveau knew everything that was going on in New Orleans because she had a, a network of uh, hairdressers. And so she knew when someone came to her door, she knew what family they were from. She knew exactly who they were about and what their troubles were. And they'd walk away absolutely stunned with amazement as to how she knew all this about them. And it made her legendary, just as it did Aunt Carolyn Dye. But I, I'm told that Aunt Carolyn Dye was a very genuine practitioner, believed very much in the spiritual goodness of what she did. None of these people would have thought they were doing anything harmful. There were ones that would practice harmful uh, uh, who do. And it's a series of practices. I met the guy who I met first was James E. McTeer. And he was a high sheriff professionally, the youngest in the nation when he took over from his father. So he now think about how this might go over in a court today. He realized the importance of what he he'd learned as a child, which were these practices. He worked them into his law enforcement to get a confession, to, <laughs> to scare the bejesus out of people. Uh, none of this would work today, but it worked for him. And he was very charismatic. Um, I watched him, my first inclination that there's something more than just showmanship going on was he had introduced me to, as his colleague from Columbia and I was sitting in a chair and he was working on this woman drawing a spirit out of her and he's running his fingers in huge hands and he was running his fingers up her back, pulling this thing out. And I got curious and I thought, I can see this. So I went over there and his hand brushed against me and I swear it, it was like sticking your finger in a light socket oh. Pow! Huh. and I kind of stumbled over and sat down in the chair and said, holy crap, what just happened here? And that's when you go, wait a minute, there's more going on than I realized. Um, but later on, he said, did you brush up against me? I said, yeah. Don't do that. That's not safe. <laughs> so, so, Jack, when when you started on all this this journey, and when you when you met Lee Gandy yeah. and all this, and you met, started meeting these people, I mean, were you looking at this kind of from an anthropological student's way of like this is an academic study that I'm doing, yeah. and then it just yeah. became much more intensely personal for you as time went on. I kept desperately trying to remain academically objective and finally I realized that if I did not go native and that's the term for it mm -hmm. if I did not go native and drop some of this I would never get inside the real practice I would stay at the periphery I would be descriptive but I wouldn't 
I wouldn't feel it. Right. I wouldn't experience it to the depth. So at, at, at a point I remember realizing, and Lee helped me with this. He said, you know, you either have to be able to cope with this or you need to go. He said, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. He said, but, you know, you need to come to terms with it because you're on a journey now. And you can walk away right now. But once you enter, it's not going to be easy to walk away. And he was right. He was absolutely right. Uh, It takes a level of commitment. It takes a willingness to endure uh, the ridicule sometimes or the poking fun at you for what people see as um, superstitious silliness. But I think that's almost true of anyone who seriously pursues any sort of spiritual or religious tradition. You're going to find yourself separate from the fellow or the, the gal who spends her afternoons in front of the TV. And they're not going to pick up on what you're doing. They're not going to understand it. So you learn to sort of be one way for uh, those that will understand and one way for those that don't. You know, don't try to hurt anyone. I had an interesting experience I'll share with you. I was giving a lecture. And afterwards, this African professor came up and he says, you have helped me. And I thought, oh, oh, in what way? And he goes, my father was the village oracle. He said, the things you've been saying about hoodoo have reconnected me to my home. And I thought, well, I'm very glad. I'm thank, thank you very much. He says, I'm not going to feel funny about this anymore. I thought, well, good for you. Go and embrace yourself. Go and embrace your heritage. And that's what I always tell people. Like, you know, you'll find out that grandma did little things. Grandma believed little things. One lady told me one afternoon, she said, and I love the way this always starts. She said, they say you know some stuff. Okay, what about? Well, you know, it's kind of like magical stuff. Yeah, okay. I found a room behind my mother's closet as I broke down her house. There's an altar in there. There's all this stuff. I don't know what to make of it. None of us ever knew she was doing this. Really? What are you going to do about it? I don't know. I said, did you feel different about your mother? She said, yes, I realized there was part of her I never knew. Yeah. So that's the kind of things that people come up with you and will talk to you about it. I had a college professor that said, and they always, they sneak up and kind of look around like, well, I don't know if I, nobody's around to hear me say this. And she says, when I was a little girl, I fell into a cauldron of scalding water. I was going to be disfigured, but mama took me to auntie who blew across my face. And the next morning it had all healed. Now, what do you make of this? I don't know. How does a child know? that what's being done for it is magic. They don't. 
So something's happening. Right. Something's taking place. And that was a point that you make in the book as well, where you talk about, but because that's usually the one um, item used to kind of say, well, this is a psychological effect on people that it makes them feel better with these rituals that are done. But then how does that equate to these other healing traditions that are being also used on animals? How does an animal yeah. know? You know, and then the animal didn't. that starts to kind of fall apart once you bring that whole thing in to say that there's another force that is through that person that is external being channeled. Um, I want to talk about Lee Gandy, uh, and because okay. he uh, is the most interesting figure in the book for sure. And it, there's so much to him, <laughs> and it, well, a few, there is a few things that stood out to me was, well, his boys. I guess you could say that these were like the spirit guides, and him taking you to outside to tell you about elementals and about how the basically you're getting into the fairy realm and folklore and how that like that's even a connection there with powwow which i had no idea that that was a part of it and this kind of idea of of parallel worlds that he talks to you about in the book did the whole ultra ever heard that term uh the multi-dimensional self-dimensional beings yeah the ultra terrestrials yeah. 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 John Keel, you know, coined that. Yes. Yeah. This business with the Mothman had just happened. And he was fascinated with that. We talked a lot about that in the early days. Oh, really? Okay. He thought that was an ultra terrestrial slipping through. And it apparently, as far as I know, from what I've read about the Mothman, never harmed anyone. Scared the hell out of them, but right. didn't harm anybody. Right. Um, there have been cases. I know there was a case with Lee that scared the crap out of me. Where I went to the door, and he won't let me in. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Um, and we got in finally, and this event occurred. I knew something was up when he was pouring a ball, Morton salt, and he was pouring a circle around us in salt. And it's like one of those, oh crap, what the hell is happening? Why is this room so cold? It shouldn't be this way. And then something manifested, and it was about as scared as, you know, people say you got the fear of God in you. The fear of God was certainly in me. And I had my eyes closed. I thought, no, I don't want to see anything. <laughs> I don't I don't want to face this. And I was praying up a storm. And he said that was something that had slipped behind, slipped through a dimension, and was wreaking havoc. And sure enough, there were a whole series at that time of unexplained, utterly violent events that had occurred. People didn't know why they'd attacked their family. So, like I say, there's there's a, a dark and light side of this. Um, so, I, you know, that one just about drove me away because I thought, and the whole business, um, if you read the whole thing that you know about the car, 
Yeah, can you tell that story? Yeah, That's I went there and things weren't, things weren't different and not right, and I kept feeling strange, and I felt the heavy pressure on the back of my neck and my shoulders. And I finally said, I got to get out of here. This is just not right. Something weird. And I looked over at one of his cough. He kept coughing from the odd fellow's lodge in his room. Because he liked, he liked to freak people out who, uh, who were from sort of the community. So I looked over that thing and I saw a face in it. I thought, that's it. I'm out of here. Huh. I'm done. I'm done for this day. So I made my excuses that I wasn't feeling well and I left. And I got in the car and I started it and it took off by itself. And there was nothing I could do to control it. And I was, I was beside myself. I did not know what was going to happen. It sailed down a hill and crossed the stream. Now that's significant. It, the water broke it, connection. And all of a sudden it's like, vroom, the car stopped. I'm literally shaking. I don't even know. And I thought, I've had enough of all this. That's enough. I'm out of here. No more. And I didn't go back for, I think, about a month or so. And finally, I thought, well, I owe the man the decency of writing him a letter and telling him what happened. And uh, he'd already figured out what had happened because he had a, a fellow who was apparently jealous of me who could project really well um, and was not a credible person not a nice person either. Uh, so he was literally messing with me. And I actually ran into this guy later on. Uh, now, if you do this kind of stuff with the worst of intent, it finds you. Everything you do will find you because, as Lee said, it's like a liquid universe. You can pee in one end of the pool and swim away, <laughs> but eventually it will find you. Right, right. Whatever you it's do is going to come back to you. Yeah, because right. it's a closed environment. Right. Like an aquarium. And this guy started heavily drinking. And when you heavily drink, you might as well kiss your psychic stuff goodbye. Also, Lee taught us it's time for you to learn to protect yourself. And we gain a whole series of, of trainings on how to do the protection work. And it I need, turns out I needed it for a while but he kind of burned himself out. Uh, you cannot be, you cannot abuse yourself with drugs and alcohol and be any kind of magician. You can't do the, you can't do the lucid dreaming. You cannot enter shamanic consciousness. I've heard, Oh, you know, I get, I get three quarters drunk and then I go into shamanic consciousness. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not buying that. What about, you think you have, what about the ayahuasca stuff, though? The DMT and people doing psychedelics. That? Like, what? What's your thoughts on that? I wouldn't recommend it. In all honesty, I could not recommend that anyone go that route. It's like jumping ahead of yourself. Because what you do when you learn to do this slowly is you develop the emotional capacity to handle what happens. Mm -hmm. If you take the drugs, then it's, it shoots you right up to the top. And you may have visions and you may have uh, um, 
different things that happened, but you're not emotionally capable of coping with them. And it's just uncontrolled. It's uncontrolled. If you take it slow, if you move gradually towards this, you'll know how to control it. Same thing with spirit work. I, I see these poor souls, God bless them, with their little toys, going into some really, like a former mental hospital or some kind of thing. You have no idea what's in there. And you probably are not capable of coping with whatever it does come after. If it does come after you, I feel sorry for you. You won't even be able to get it off. Let me give you an example. I got called to a college dorm in a small college one night because, quote unquote, you know about this stuff. So I went, I walked into this dorm room. There wasn't a stick of furniture that wasn't shattered. I looked around. I thought, oh, God. I said, what happened here? Apparently, some of these young ladies were playing with a Ouija board. <laughs> and something went really wrong. I said, where are they? They're in the hospital. Apparently, one of them just went off her rocker. Mm-hmm. The best thing you can do is clean this place up. And I hope they learned their lesson. Because something did come. And something did take its piece of pound of flesh to use what is it Shakespeare's pound of flesh they took mm-hmm. and they paid for it um, uh, paid for it with their health and they paid for it with their mental stability I would you know it's it's like the spectrophilia there's one fellow that was got into that and he was all into it and he'd found his love of his life and in, in uh, non-corporeal form and last I heard, he was still in the mental hospital. Whoa. No hope of Very sad. But that's, that's how I feel about that kind of stuff. If you move gradually, if you evolve into it in a slow, deliberate fashion, being careful, uh, you'll get where you're going. And is you it, really will. And is it best to have someone like Lee with you to kind of guide you into that world as like a a master apprentice kind of relationship. Yeah. I will say this. You got to be careful anymore with this because um, there are a lot of people out there that aren't exactly ethical. Uh, Tony and I have done a whole talk on how to look for a spiritual teacher and there are things they won't, there are things that are just red lights that should go off in your head immediately. If, if somebody wants you to give them money, if somebody needs sex from you, uh, if somebody uh, actually had one person say, oh, you have to enter the great right with me. No, I'm not doing that. But you'll never know the depth of, uh, yeah, I will. I understand. No, thank you. No, you'll have to somehow make it without that. The great right being probably some kind of sexual, sexual favors, thing. yeah. 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 Nope. No great rights today. Thank you very much. <laughs> so <laughs> not for you. So what would your thoughts be uh, on someone say like Aleister Crowley that was very much I mean, you talk about a drug <laughs> addict. 
Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, seriously into all this kind of sex magic and really just pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Someone like him, I mean, it sounds like that he would basically would be on the other side of this kind of tradition. He would. Yeah. Uh, And he left a trail of just human destruction all around him. Right. You ever read about some of his followers and how they ended up? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying he didn't have some genuine experiences. I'm not saying he didn't tap into any to uh, that. It was all a lot of his was, uh, you know, guy was good. He was a great showman. Uh, and he, he, even, even, even someone who, who, uh, is a showman occasionally will hit the right button, so to speak, and things will happen. Uh, but he sure hurt a lot of people in the process. That is true. Including himself. I, I mentioned Lee's boys. This was the, um, these the ghosts, spirits. I guess. Yeah. I, uh, what was his relationship to them? And you actually saw one, I, I, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. I saw Hans Andreas. Um, yeah. What were their they names? Were, they had some interesting names. Yeah, they did. Um, he, they were like, companions Lee had been involved in the spiritualist movement in that way he was a little different than some of the other powwows I've met but he was very much involved in the spiritualist movement so the idea of a spirit familiar was very comfortable for him Uh, and I really think they they served that purpose for him most of them they just kind of wandered around with him there was nothing remarkable he knew when danger was around because they'd run. <laughs> they, they were scared too. When this thing came, this negative thing from the other dimension, he said he first knew something was wrong because all of them were gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they'd fled the house. Uh, they knew they couldn't stand up to that kind of thing. They skedaddled. They skedaddled, exactly. Yeah. But they, it was almost like friendly guys. They were like little boys from the neighborhood who would come over, although they were adult spirits. But there was no... Um, I Literally, they were just companions. They would tell him stuff. They would go hunt things for him. They would help him locate people. And to an extent, would protect him. That's the, that's the role they served. How did Lee first get into this stuff? I know you mentioned that he was atypical uh, for a, a powwow doctor and that he came from a highly educated background, yeah. whereas most powwows, you said, were, were farmers or tradesmen. Yeah. Um, he was very well educated. He uh, had been an academic. When I knew him, he worked for the state as a historian. Um He's got into it through his family. Okay. His grandmother. There was some mix-up and some question about his his paternity. So his grandmother sort of took charge of him. And she raised him. If you can find a copy of his book, it's an interesting read. It's a combination of magic, his coming out as a gay person, uh, 
And believe you me, that freaked a lot of the local people out when that book came out. That freaked him out even more than he was a palo oh, doctor to talk oh, to spirits, yeah. right? Yeah. It didn't do much for his relationship with his wife. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and I felt bad for her. She yeah. really, she suffered. Um, when he first moved over to Carpenter Street, after he moved out of her house, um, he was like a kid in a candy store. And one of my college roommates was living with him. And he had said, you don't realize what he's doing. He's trying to indulge everything he's always hoped to indulge. And it, they're all kind of crazy people coming over. So there's a, at the end of the book, there's a dialogue, part of a dialogue between me and Lee about, you know what you're doing is bad. You know you're going to get hurt. Uh, and he knew it. He just was sowing his oats, so to speak. That's one thing about Lee is he was very much um, a non, when you think about a spiritual teacher, he had all a whole nother side to him. I was so glad when he told me he found me physically unattractive. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was, that's fine. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, I was not his type. But I felt I was worried about him. I was afraid he's going to bring somebody home who was not was going to hurt him and sadly his death probably could have been prevented he had a couple old characters living with him who saw him sitting in a chair and didn't realize that he'd had a stroke and uh, didn't call the doctor so by the time his son came and found him he was too far gone and that's how he died Jeez. and and just as bad as that is that his family arranged a very quick sale of all of his stuff, including his notebooks, including his his library, his charms, his stuff, all gone in a matter of an hour or two. Wouldn't you have loved to have had some of that stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd have driven all the way. I was living in Virginia at the time. I would have, I would have beelined it down there. But I didn't know. And it was just like the family, the family didn't like this aspect of his personality. And they just wanted to get it out of their sight as quick as possible. Now that their father was gone. I think his son still lives in that old house. Um, but his, his original house that I was in with him, uh, that I used to see him in the, for the first part of it, has been bought by uh, a couple or something. They fix it up. You can barely tell it's uh, somewhere. I could. I think there's pictures of it. I put up on the web of what it looked like, and it was a true hex house. It faced east, between two running bodies of water, and the door had two screens on it, so that you had to enter through body, mind, and spirit. It's so tragic that that happened in kind of in a lot of similar situations, just the level of disrespect and that anyone from any other kind of denomination of established religions, you know, no one would ever, it seems like, you know, get rid of their spiritual no. artifacts. But, yeah. but whenever anyone is into any kind of, right. Any kind of magic or, or folk system that actually, you know, you're 
you're actually engaging, you know, one on one with the supernatural. You know that it, it's it's seen as lower somehow, or well, it's not th- respected. Yeah, this leads me to a question, uh, Jack, and we asked Jake Richards about this too. I mean, do you see now kind of the more like the rise of a real right wing kind of evangelical Christianity that is becoming that is inimical, or sees this folk magic tradition as something evil? Oh yeah, is that has has that become more and more of a problem as the years have gone? Yeah, gone by? is it is it actually less tolerant now than right. in the past? Right, I think it is. I think people have gone back underground. Uh, they've gone back underground. They're a lot quieter than they used to be. Um, no one knows how this is going to go, but they're, you know, as some. One lady said to me, he said, I could lose my children. You know, if, you know, in a divorce proceeding, this could be thrown up in my face, be declared an unfit mother. Um, it's also helpful. I mean, I've had to kind of be careful uh, about how much I talk about it and with whom. Um, because, you know, any it's not what... Uh, your average professor does. Right. Um, but I keep at it. I keep, I keep trying to reach out and I keep learning. Uh, still have plenty to learn. Uh, still have plenty to experience. Uh, for a long time, I really avoided getting involved with people who needed help because I just didn't, I didn't know how to handle it all. You know, I wasn't skilled at it. I didn't know if I get sucked into something that would harm me or the people I loved. And uh, so I was, I took me a while to sort of say, I can help safely help people and protect myself. Okay. And that's what you really got to be careful of. You know, a lot of people have very best of intentions. But you can always tell the people that are not skilled at this because they get sucked into. Sometimes you've got to be careful. There are a lot of what I, I call vampires out there. People who are emotionally disturbed to the point that they will attach themselves to you, uh, milk you dry of all your psychic energy, and it's never enough for them. So you have to be very, very careful about who you take on in terms of helping. And that's why I always say to people, I'm not your teacher. I never will be your teacher. I'll point you in the right direction, but I'm not going to teach you. Because it's just, I don't know this person and I have to be careful about them. It's a lot of responsibility. if, If I think that they're parasitic in nature, they don't mean to be, but they are. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that does make yeah. sense. Yeah. We yeah. all, I think, probably... Psychic vampires. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they are really out there. Yep. Some of them are very sad people, but they're ne- you, there's nothing you really can do to help them. Right. And they won't help themselves. Right. And part of it, I guess, is that they're just not aware. No, that they they're not be, aware. That they and may you, be that. Um, there's a, do you know Dorothy Morrison? Does that ring a bell? No. 
Dorothy Morrison sort of works the um, is sort of the more witchy aspect, but she's a funny lady. She and a fellow called Merv Sellers have this wonderful dialogue they do called uh, talking about yebats. And a yebat is somebody who you offer some sort of spiritual help to. And they go, yeah, but it doesn't apply to me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's one of the clearest things you can do is like, well, have you tried? Yeah, but that doesn't work. Okay. All right. Fine. Have you been asked to do like bad things for people? Do you normally turn those down? I try to talk them out of doing it. Yeah. Um, I had a woman come to me very nice woman and she was a friend who was really angry at this man who felt this man was hurting people and wanted me to create a kill route something that would do him in and my wife's sitting there and her friend is sitting there and I finally said okay I'll do it and I made one right in front of her and I gave it to her and I said every time you squeeze this you're going to cause him pain. Every time you stab it, and if you do it enough, you'll kill him. Here it is. And my wife went, what on earth have you done? And I said, this is a good person. She's not going to keep doing this. And sure enough, in two weeks, she called and said, I don't want this thing anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. What do I do with this root? And I said, Take it and bury it under an oak tree or throw it in the river. Salt water preferred. Drown it in salt water or bury it in an oak tree. Give it back to Mother Earth. Because once she thought I'm actually inflicting this guy with pain, her better nature took over. And she decided, I don't really want this to be part of what I'm doing as a person. And that's, that's the approach I try to take with people is I try to not, first of all, not enter into their anger, not enter into their revenge set. Because it's going to get me too. Yeah. Uh, I like said I've it'll bounce few, back. Yeah. I've done a few negative things. They've all worked. But I've ended up paying a hell of a price for it. So in my mind, it's just not worth it. Yeah, it's better to not go there into that. Yeah. And if you're if you're mad enough, if you feel like you really got to do this, then do it. Have no remorse about it, and accept what comes. Mm-hmm. And if you're okay with that, knock yourself out. But it will come. One of the last things we probably want to get to is the uh, granny woman. Oh, yeah. So can you give us kind of a background of of her, her and that tradition? Okay. I met her through her granddaughter. I worked at the University of Virginia, and that's an expensive school, so my meager savings ran out pretty quick. So I ended up in the kitchen, and I met this young lady, uh, who, and we got talking. And she said, oh, my granny does this sort of thing, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to meet her? Yeah, sure I would. You bet. So we went out there and met this little soul, just as pure as she could be. Strong, 
mountain woman, uh, no nonsense person. Uh, you instantly respected her. And I went to see her about two, three times. And um, she could do the some, most amazing thing. She could call the birds from the trees. She'd hold up her finger, and a wild bird would fly down, light on her finger. She'd talk to it. She'd kiss it on the beak and then send it on. She never fed them. She never did any kind of reward system like you would think you'd do with a trained animal. But her energy was of such a nature that they came to her, which I, I thought you felt like you were in the presence of someone really holy. I had the same experience when Patrick Don Moyer and I went to uh, Mount Mary's grave in Pennsylvania. Mount Mary was a uh, 18th century powwow. The mother of the powwows of the Ole Valley. I got up on that little mountain, which was on private property. And I, it was like stepping into a blissful paradise. It just took over. The energy was so strong. Uh, my own great grandmother had that energy and she had been a, um, they call it midwife said she brought three to 400 babies into the world. And she literally had the capacity to walk into a room full of angry, arguing, yelling people didn't say a word, just sat down. And within seconds, they'd stop fighting. Pretty soon they were hugging each other. Pretty soon they were crying on each other's shoulder. She had some kind of radiant capacity uh, that I think was brought about by a purity of spirit. Um, I've heard other people talk about this phenomena with uh, holy people, saints in the sort. Uh, but I think, you know, this was definitely had this woman in, in, in Southwest Virginia had this capacity. Uh, she also talked about, you know, fighting negative things like the first time I'd ever heard of a witch ball, uh, which is a animated pro projection of negativity sent after someone. Uh, and her daughter told me about that, that someone had sent one after her and they caught it and buried it as it was coming up the hall. You know, this all sounds, I'm sure, pretty far-fetched. But at that point, I'd seen enough things that I didn't question it. Uh, there are a lot of things out there that we haven't got a clue as to how they really happen. And it's not all hallucination. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, there's... I think we, we've always been much more as beings than the simple things we're told we are. Yeah. You know, we worry so much about dying, we don't even know what it is to be alive. Yeah. I mean, you get all philosophical on you, but we really don't. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, there, there's a whole other level of things that we're not, that we can tap into. But for some reason, I think most people choose not to. And I, and I think that materialism has really contributed to that. And I mean, I a, science has brought us a lot of great things, but at the same time, it's diminished the 
world of the spirit. Yes. And that it's world only, that humans only, have inhabited for for millennia. It's only one explanation of what happens in the realm of consciousness. Right. It, yes. It's right. It is if it's testable, that's really excellent. But that may not be all that's there. Unfortunately, there seems to be a lot of utility in uh, us not recognizing our divinity. And a lot of people are able to exploit us because of that. Well, sure. If you can tell somebody they're basically nothing, that they're an incorrigible sinner, that they have no true value, that God doesn't really accept them, except if they're only do this, that, and the other, you got yourself a really good slave. Yeah. And somebody you can just manipulate like crazy. So what, what traditions did Granny come from? Did her practice come from? They were mountain Pentecostals. Okay. And there were people in the community who weren't certain about how they felt about her doing what she did. Most of what she did was simple healing. They were uh, burns, cuts, um, the standard kind of bruising. She was not a bone setter. There were bone setters. You know, people who would jerk a bone back into place, but I don't, I don't know if she had that kind of strength. Um, she could come up with herbs. She knew how to work with children's illnesses like measles and chicken pox, that kind of stuff. So she was, she performed that role and that of a counselor. She was very much a counselor to people who would come with their, their uh, problems. And as far as I knew, she was well liked by the congregation she belonged to. They had no, they saw her as a very holy person they, they could consult with. Yeah, I mean, in that time, in her lifetime, that's how it was. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the striking aspect to these traditions, the granny woman and also powwow, is that it's it's with well within this Christian context. Right. It doesn't divorce itself from it. And in the last, I'd say, few decades, Christianity has kind of just tried to divorce itself from a lot, especially Protestantism. But it's really tried to divorce itself from a lot of these kind of magic traditions because they're afraid of the word magic. When for centuries, it was just something that was part of it. And if you think about when you watch a, a minister lift his hands in invocation, he's practicing magic. Right. When he lays his hands in blessing, he's practicing magic. Physically, he's not doing anything from a scientific standpoint. All those are ritualistic, magical things. Now, I have upset people on occasion by saying that. Oh, no, it's different. Okay, show me how it's different. Well, it's in the Christian context. Okay, you just kind of missed the point. He's practicing magic. You just don't recognize it as such. Yeah. When I I, I dealt with a here in Bowling Green, I dealt with a couple, a family, and I had a professor call me and said, "I, be, I belong to this church. There's a family that's." Uh, brought something home that's wreaking havoc in their home. The minister tried to go out there and it's worse now. And the sad truth is most ministers don't have a clue how to deal with this stuff. 
and they make it they actually do make it worse in a general sense uh, because they don't have to believe it themselves he said would you please talk to these people so I did and I thought I don't really want to get involved but I will so they called they were wonderful solid Christian people their son had gone on a heritage quest to Africa and had brought home a mask tribal mask most of that stuff is is tourist junk but apparently this one was not and the mother while trying to dust it one morning touched it and it jumped her Mm. and she started having visions and she started having all kinds of things happening in the house so when I heard this I said well where's the mask now we got rid of it Strangest thing, we took it to the Goodwill, and this white man came up behind us and said he'd give us whatever we wanted for it. I thought, really? Okay, what did he know, and why did he know that you had it? Yeah, that was interesting when I read that in the book. Yeah, yeah. So, I said, here's some things you can do. You can clean, there's a house cleaning, spiritual house cleaning, that kind of stuff. I gave him all those instructions, hung up the phone. I thought, well, that's that. No, it wasn't that. Um, about six weeks later, I got another call saying, please come out. Please help us. It's getting worse. Crap. Okay. So I got my divining rods. Because people want to see things. If you say you feel something, unless they can see it happen, independent of you they're probably not going to believe you but I get out there, it's a beautiful home pictures of Jesus on the wall, Bibles everywhere Um, we talked we prayed I took it strictly from the Christian context Um, then I went around the house with the rods, I reached one point on the wall near the kitchen and they spun like a helicopter really fast so I grabbed them I said what was here well that's where we hung the mask okay now if they if they've been sensitive to it they would have picked up that the children were afraid of it and the animals ran from it that should have been a clue right there not to hang that thing on the wall but what happened then was I moved through the house and I got to a back closet and I opened the closet and those things spun again. And I'm thinking to myself, don't magnify their fear. Don't do anything to get them upset. So I went and I got my holy water. I anointed them with oil, with holy oil. And I began, I went over to this spot on the wall and I blessed it. I cast out. Then, <laughs> And there were children in the house. This this is this was making me crazy. There were children in the house. They didn't make a peep, but they were there. Uh, I got back to the closet. I raised back to cast in, and this little girl goes, "What if it's grandma?" And I looked over at the lady of the house, and she looks me right in the eye and says, "Do it." Hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was all I could do to keep from laughing. It's not oh, grandma. Don't like grandma, huh? Okay. So I did the blessing. And I'm thinking all the time, gee, I hope this works. I really hope this works. So we went out. We had more prayer. I blessed the living room. I blessed each room. Um, and that worked, apparently. Thank goodness for that. But I'll never forget the, uh, what if it's grandma? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, when you mentioned the guy buying the mask from them, this mysterious guy, and uh, we, we we were talking about root doctors, you mentioned how these politicians would go and they would consult the root doctor. It's a very famous root doctor, I believe, in Memphis. Yep. And, I mean, uh, is there a link between some people in political power and being oh, yeah. into this into there this stuff? There was a character in D.C. was charging 5000 bucks at a time. And the senators and Congress people were going there. So much so that he got on the FBI's radar. And they kind of showed him to the edge of town. <laughs> huh. Can you imagine what? Can you imagine what that would have done, and how that would have appeared in the Washington Post? The scandal. Oh man, people well, seek occult help with. I mean, that's the thing is that the, you know that you you even got politicians, people that are our leaders that are, you know. We're supposed to think of them as practical people, but they're into all this. Well, I, I love the way McTeer described it. And he, because I actually said, I said, well, what if I don't believe any of this? He said, doesn't make any difference. In fact, you're easier to get than the others. If I do something to you, you'll try to pretend it's not happening. Pretty soon you'll be a mess. Whereas the local folks just come and have me take it off. And they're done. Yeah. Yeah. It made, it made me think a little bit about uh, Papa Doc Duvalier and oh yeah, in Haiti and how he used he was he was also a voodoo priest. Yeah. And so he used that as a way to maintain his power. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of these old time root doctors were a figure of power in their community. Uh, they did not book a challenge or book a challenge easy. They would come out swinging. And there's some terrible stories of someone trying to take over for somebody and what happens. Usually someone dies. So it's I'm almost told- like contested, uh, how we'd have like a contested area of, of like a, a- a criminal group for some kind of racket or drugs or something like it's like, this is this root doctor's neighborhood and his territory. Yeah. Stay off of it. Right. You really, that's a different kind of person than most of your, uh, who do practitioners. Most of them are a little old lady or man who can help you get better. Who could pull a spirit out of you, who could clean out your house but would never hurt a soul. Mm-hmm. And that's probably 97% of them. You hear about the others, <laughs> but 97% of them uh, are just good people, excellent people, kind. There's a wonderful man in Memphis now. 
he's a pharmacist. Uh, he's in his 90s. Of course, he doesn't run his pharmacy anymore because he's lost his sight. His name is Mr. Champion. And I had the privilege to meet him. And the minute he reached out and took my hand, I felt the incredible power. He would, he had the ability to move into you, to check you out. Mm. And I sat down with him and we talked. And when I left there, I felt altogether better. I felt calm because he was the real deal. He may still be alive. I don't know. Because that's one that was like maybe last year that I was, or the year before that I was there. Cool. Memphis has his own tradition. Tony Kale is somebody you should talk to about that. Oh, we want to talk to him. We've really been trying to get him on the show. Yeah, yeah we want to talk to him. He could put in a good word for us. Yeah. <laughs> I sure will. Uh, Jack, um, this has been yeah. excellent. I've, I've really enjoyed our time together. Um, can you tell people where they can get the book and also what's next on the slate for you? Okay. Um, speaking of Tony, that is. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of Tony, um, the book you can find, best place to hunt it for is on Amazon or any used bookstore. <clears throat> I've got about 20 copies of the of the 2000 uh, printing. The two, tw- there was 2000 copies initially printed. I've got about 20 left it, because the publisher went under and I just bought his stock. Um, Does Aroma G have any in stock? Because I could direct. Yes, Aroma G has them. Yeah, if you're in Nashville, Aroma G and off Donaldson Pike, they, they have them. I have, there. I have to say that Aroma G is probably one of the nicest stores. Yeah, I agree. I They're really cool. I've ever been in. Yeah. He is, and he is a prince of a fella to, to work with. He really is. Nicest. He and his partner are the nicest people. Couldn't, I would, you know, can't say enough nice things about him. What Tony and I are working on now is we signed a contract with Llewellyn. Um, we were approached at Mystic South in Atlanta last year by one of their uh, book agents to see if we would want to do something. So we wrote a proposal on the supernatural in American folk traditions. And we're in the process of writing that now. Tony's focusing on the uh, hoodoo and the uh, Kurndismo of the Southwest. And I'm doing the Appalachian and the powwow sections. And what we're going to do is talk about the supernatural as it fits within those traditions. And what surprised me is that Llewellyn bought the idea of a semi-academic book. I, you know, most of their stuff is kind of lighthearted, and and it's a lot of it's very good, but it's written at, at, in a non-academic way. And what we proposed was was a combination of the uh, academic along with the uh, popular, and they bought it. So we signed our contract, and we got we've got till April to get it to them. So that's what we're doing now. I've been able to. I'm right now. I'm learning down a lot of old newspaper clippings where people have had contacts with a root doctor or a powwow doctor from the all the way back in the 1860s, and it appeared in the paper. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're up to now. Cool. 
Very nice. We'll have to get you both guys on for that to talk about that. Um, for sure. All right, Jack. Well, uh, this has been great. Um, thank you totally so much is, for coming. Totally yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, he's he he's got he knows the Memphis tradition better than anyone I know. Yeah, I, I follow him on I follow him on Facebook and Twitter, and he's always posting all kinds yeah. of old advertisements and he talks about stuff in that here like around Nashville too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good guy. All right. Uh, Jack, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out this section. And, guys, we'll be back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. We're going to close out the show. That was a rather kind of extended interview, but a really good one. Yeah, that was great. With Jack Montgomery. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Jack at a uh, folk magic festival here in Nashville back when I was passing out flyers trying to get people interested in the Strange Realities Conference. Was I gone or I was just working? Uh, You were... I think you felt bad or something or something was going on or I think you might have been... I don't... I don't quite <coughs> quite remember what it was. Heather actually came out there that day. Um, if you guys can't tell, Adam is now sick. Yes, it's uh, it's it's switching back and forth. Yeah, I've been not feeling very well today, but I'm still here because so the show must go on. So, uh, any thoughts about that interview before we kind of close out? Well, it was absolutely fascinating, um, and. Uh, it was just a cool uh, overview of kind of three three traditions and very strong uh, personalities within those. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought the uh, kind of the uh, uh, the the documentary nature of it of you know having these long conversations and preserving a lot of this like folk traditions straight from the. Uh, from the mouths of the participants is a really cool aspect. Of oh the book yeah, too. man, that, that's that's priceless. Have you gotten far into the book? Yeah, I'm about halfway. Okay, yeah, it's a it it's a it's a great one. I highly recommend it. Um, let me give it to me real quick. So, what's by it? It's called American Shamans Journeys with Traditional Healers by Jack Montgomery. So, you guys, check that out. All right, so. Um, this is episode 296. We are heading towards episode 300. And please, guys, if you are interested in being a part of our listeners only 300th episode, please hit us up at conspiranormal at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up at Adam Sane on Facebook. Um, or Twitter. Or Twitter is Conspiranormal. You can hit us up there or on the Conspiranormal Facebook page as well. Also, don't forget the YouTube channel. Get us to 1,000 subscribers as soon as possible. That would be nice. And Sirfiel can tell you about Patreon. Well, you can find us at patreon.com slash Conspiranormal. We're making one-time donation at Conspiranormal.com. Uh, but yeah, please contact us and uh, let us know uh, what you want to talk about, and you can be on Conspiranormal. Yep, yeah, episode three hundred coming up very very soon, guys. 
All right, that's it. Next time, uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt is going to rejoin us here. We're going to talk about book one of his series on the Spirit of Cornwall. So join us then on Conspiranormal. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.